Amen. Thank you, Tez. So, some of you may know that I just got married recently, right? Yes, thank you. I, I, it's been great. I've never seen this many people happy for me. And, you know, we were pretty stoked ourselves. But do you know who might just be the happiest person about my marriage? Interestingly, it's my dad. My marriage is by far and without question, by miles, the happiest he's ever been about anything I've ever done. And in fact, as far as I remember at least, right, it's probably the happiest I've ever seen him. And the reason for why my marriage was so celebrated for my dad, like seriously, it's as if it's his achievement that I got married, is because of the narrative he lives by and the significance that this narrative places on my marriage. Okay, let me explain. So if you can't tell by my face or by my name, I come from the Batak ethnic group, and it has seriously like a lot of very particular traditions and beliefs. And one of the most interesting beliefs that my culture holds is that we have a very defined idea of what constitutes a perfect life, okay? So to have a perfect life, you need to have three things happen, okay? You need all your kids to survive. You need to have enough money to see all your kids get married and throw this massive traditional party for them. And you need to live long enough to see all your kids have grandchildren. If you have experienced these three things, according to the Batak narrative, you have lived a complete perfect and beautiful life. Right? There's nothing left for you to experience or do on earth. And when you die, it's a perfect death. And the entire tribe will celebrate your life as it is a complete life. So why my marriage is very important to my dad was because as he was getting old until about a month ago, he had none, right? He was O for three. So he was getting anxious because if he were to tragically die before I get married, no matter what else he's accomplished in his life, and it's certainly not nothing. Nonetheless, according to the Batak narrative, his life would be a sad, incomplete, abject failure. And in his funeral, his life will not be celebrated, but he would be pitied. Kasian, like, you know, that'll be the sentiment there. And it's crazy, right? But now, at least because I was married and we got through this whole Batak party. The narrative of his life slightly improved, right? He's no longer the bottom of the barrel anymore. His life is not a pitied, abject failure anymore because at least he's experienced one of the great joys in life, right? Hence, he was overjoyed. And why I bring this up is to hopefully illustrate how powerful narratives can be in someone's life. It dictates what is important to us what our lives' purpose is supposed to be and what the meaning of the things in our lives that happen to us are. It tells us how we ought to live our lives. Friends, our narratives is a profoundly important part of our identity formation as it ultimately determines what truths we live by, what reality itself is for us. Now, each of us may be influenced by a combination of different narratives. You might come from 
a more Western narratives where above all, where individuals and the purpose is to be self-made and independent. Or we may come from a more Eastern society where it's more a dynastic narrative that above all, we are the ones who will inherit and carry on the family name and our purpose is to build upon what our predecessors have handed to us. And it might be some combination of these two or another one altogether. Point is that we all have a narrative. We're all living out some story. So you can imagine why it might be pretty helpful and important for us to be self-conscious about which narrative that we're actually living out right now. Because I'm sure each of us would want to base our lives in a narrative that we actually believe in and not a narrative that's simply been imposed upon us. And for the Christian, it's especially important. Because you should see, what Christianity is trying to teach us is not a list of rules or, you know, good advice to a better life. Rather, what the Bible is literally, as in as a work of literature, is an epic narrative. The true narrative from the Creator's perspective, where it's telling us God's story, and to be a Christian means that this story has become our story, which means we are necessarily removing ourselves from the counter-narratives that the world is constantly trying to pressure us to accept and choosing consciously to reconsider and reorient our lives according to God's narrative. And this is why, friends, the text that we're studying today and for the next month or so as we finish up studying Genesis 2 and 3 is so important. Because what we're going to be learning in these chapters is the Bible's archetypal narrative about the human condition. Right? You certainly have heard this passage before because it's the granddaddy of all the Bible stories. And the themes and the symbolisms and the storylines that's introduced in these stories will be cycled on repeat throughout the whole Bible all the way up to the New Testament. Right? So a good grasp a firm grasp of what's happening here will go a long way in our efforts to ground ourselves in God's narrative, okay? So get ready, because today we're going to be studying this first scene in this archetypal narrative, right? Verses, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 17, the story about how the world was meant to be. Okay, so let's read it together. This is the Word of God. Genesis 2, chapter 4. I mean, uh, verse 4. These are generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord God made the heavens. When no bush of the fields was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field yet had sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground God made the spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there divided to become four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Friends, previously in chapter 1 of God's creative work, we see it on a cosmic scale, right? In one glorious movement. We learn how God created the world and what his ideal for the world is. But what we've just read gets us into reality, right? It's not giving us an account of what comes chronologically after or logically after what happened in chapter 1, but it is teaching us what's happening on the ground in God's world while it was still in its ideal state, okay? And it reminds us at least three truths that we must hold on to about the world that once was. Our three points today. In the beginning, God, one, elevated mortal creatures, two, to work to, uh, and keep his holy sanctuary, and three, so that we can enjoy him forever. Or you can also remember it as point one, what we are, two, where we're supposed to be, or three, what we could be. Okay, so there is seriously a lot of ground that we can cover, and we're definitely not going to get through all of it. So I'm both more excited and nervous than usual in pre preaching this text, right? It's that important. And I know I'm not going to do it justice in like 40 or so minutes, but may the Spirit of the Lord enlighten us today anyway, hey? So point one, let's get into it. In the beginning, God elevated mortal creatures. So we see in verse 4 uh, a formula that if we keep on reading the Bible, we're going to see quite a bit. It says, these are the generations. And when we see this formula, it acts like a hinge because the narrative is going to pivot from the main storyline and it's going to focus on another character that's been introduced previously in the story. And we can see that clearly being the case here. In chapter 1, the story focuses on God's overall work, this cosmic work of creating the new universe, and it ends by presenting humans as this crowning piece of his creative work who are tasked to rule on his behalf over all creation. And then in the seventh day, God rested. But in chapter 2, it focuses in on the first humans. And it zooms in to talk about God's project of trying to bring out this ideal and that, how that worked out. And we only need to read a couple of verses into our text to see that there are some discrepancies within the narrative, right? In chapter 1, we saw, for example, the plants show up before the humans did on the third day. But in verse 5, it says there weren't any plants. And the image here that we're given is that as if that there's nothing at all here. There's only dirt. It hasn't even rained yet. Then before anything else shows up, in this desolate place, desolate, dry, dust place, God creates humans. Now, check out what happens in verse 6. It says there is a mist 
that went out from the ground and was making the dry ground wet. Now this is a complicated word because the word is translated as mist here only happens in this one place in the Bible, in Hebrew. So most scholars think that it could as well be this kind of spring. But what's really lost in basically the translations of any language, because it's impossible to understand, is that this is actually really part of a really clever Hebrew word play. Okay, you see, the word that's used there, translated as miss, is this word aid, which, which is formed from the first two letters of the word for human, which is Adam, which is Adam, right? And as we found out in verse 7, God made, from the ground, God made Adam from the ground, which in Hebrew is Adama. So God used the Adama that was weathered with the aid in order to form the Adam. Feel me? It's pretty clever, I think. But the image God is trying to show us here, right, is that from this dry, desolate, dead dirt, God caused the spring, the spring of life, of living water, which is the source of divine life. And from the source of divine life, two derivative forms of life appear. Okay? There is and, and both of these forms of life were meant to bear fruit and bless the land. On the one hand, there is human life, which God told previously in chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful and more, uh, multiply. And then in verse 9, later, we'll see well, uh, that God also made to spring out fruitful trees that will sustain God's creative work here. So, as we read earlier, in fact, in our call to worship, in the biblical imagination, humans are similar to trees in this way, right? That they depend on being rooted by this living water as their source of life. And this goes hand in hand, friends, with the significance of why it is important that the Bible clearly tells us that we are made from the dust. Because what the Bible is trying to do by telling us this, that it's not teaching us what physical substance humans were created from. It's not trying to comment on Adam's material physical origins. But instead of making a physical claim, what the Bible is trying to do here is make a metaphysical one. Because what the Bible is trying to teach us is what our essence is or what kind of thing humans are namely that we are mortal contingent corruptible creatures now interestingly if you do a word study on formed of the dust in the bible you would find that later biblical authors like in the psalms david job and isaiah also thought that all humans were formed of the dust like Adam. But I'm pretty sure they had moms, right? I'm pretty sure they were conceived and brought into this world by the normal, natural processes. But nonetheless, they thought of being of the dust as a universal human condition. But if we read what they're actually talking about, we see that what they're doing is they're reflecting on the frailty, on the finitude of human existence. 
how we humans are so fragile and how easily our lives begin to unravel. See, the dust signifies in the biblical imagination non-life, the realm of death and mortality. And what this text is trying to remind us is that the existence that we have has always been contingent. It was never inevitable. We were never entitled to it. But God gifted it to us graciously nonetheless through the springs of living water in verse 7 or by in verse 7 animating this dirt creature through the breath of life. And the breath of life, friends, by the way, is not something that is exclusively given to humans, but as we will find out later in the book of Genesis and other places, all, all animals actually have this breath of life. So here's the point, right? What the Bible is trying to teach us is to hold these narratives at the same time. Both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are true. That on the one hand, God affirms that he created humans to be in a privileged, dignified place. We are made in the image of God and have the right to have dominion over all creatures, have the power to subdue the earth. Yet at the same time, the very next thing, basically, the Bible teaches us is that even so, at the end of the day, we are still like all other creatures, contingent, corruptible, destructible, mortal. The special creatures we may be, we are still creatures, nonetheless. In fact, our text suggests that we are actually designed to be dependent on God to give us life. In other words, the Bible's narrative gives us every reason to see ourselves and our fellow humans as incredibly valuable and worthy of all the honor and respect. They are the images of God, but at the same time, it keeps us grounded. It allows us to embrace the fact that without God's generosity, we cannot do anything. We cannot be anything. We are mere creatures that apart from Him, we are nothing. Apart from the Lord, we are but dust. Now, it, it, for me, at least, it begs the question, why would God bother to do this? Nothing in the text suggests that God needed to do this. And I find it very hard to believe that it was because the all-sufficient, almighty, all-powerful, triune creator of the universe was lonely in heaven and that he needed some subjects to love him and serve him. Now, while the Bible doesn't give us a direct answer, it does paint a picture of God as being this being of pure goodness who is overflowing with love and what the story does tell us clearly is what he plans to do with these dirt creatures that he's made. He wants to move in with them. Just point two. To work in the beginning, God elevated mortal creatures to work and keep his holy sanctuary. Okay, so after God created humans, he prepared for them a certain place to live, right? A garden. And in verses 8 to 14, we get a an account of the kind of place this is. Now, I realize that these verses probably don't mean a lot to us, right? It's one of those verses that we just kind of fly by in our yearly Bible reading. 
right? And it really didn't mean a lot to me before I really studied it. But this is one of the texts that really reminds us that although the Bible was written for us, it wasn't written to us, right? It was written to an ancient culture far removed from what we understand. So it's kind of expected and normal that us modern readers might miss a lot of things and be unfamiliar with the places and expressions that's mentioned here. But I find that it's noteworthy that in a narrative that generally tends to be quite terse, the author spends a significant amount of time in order to describe this garden. That's because this garden place is actually the archetype, the model, the blueprint of every sacred place that we'll uh, encounter as we read and move along in the story of the Bible, right? And I am a nerd and I'm very nerdy about this stuff and I was really tempted to get into the nitty gritty of this text verse by verse, but I don't think we have time for that and it'll be most fruitful doing that here. So let me give you the condensed version of what the point of these descriptions are. And I think there are three main things that the narrative is trying to communicate. Okay, so first thing I think that is of note that certainly wasn't in my imagination when I was a kid imagining this stuff is that the garden here is portrayed as a particular heavenly refuge in the middle of a dry, desolate, dead creation where God himself is present. So the garden uh, famously is known as the Garden of Eden. However, that's not quite accurate because if you look closely, it's describing the garden as being in Eden and not of Eden. So the image here is that there's this general realm that God created of the dry land and somewhere within the realm of the dry land is this region called Eden. And then somewhere in Eden, God planted this garden that the humans were supposed to live in. And God personally put them there. And God is described there as doing this in such personal terms as if he's there with them doing it in a face-to-face -face kind of fellowship. The word Eden itself means in Hebrew, delight or luxury. And it's never used anywhere else as a proper name except for these creation narratives. So what's being imagined here is that God created, prepared this good, fertile, luxurious land. And God chose to start this project of having his glory spread to all creation and enjoying his humans imaging him in this particular place. That, by the way, as we see in verse 9, has already been filled with every tree that is pleasing in the sight and good for food. God made a house for us, and the house has been decorated, and the fridge has been filled. So what this really brings into view, friends, is that the world that we're supposed to live in, our natural habitat, is to be in a place that has such proximity to God that we can be completely reliant on the abundance that has already been gifted to us by God. A place where we have never have any reason to doubt if God will take care of us. It is a place where it is rational to have the mindset of Jesus 
who is never anxious about well, what he'll eat or what he'll wear because he absolutely trusts that his heavenly Father will provide. And this garden place, friends, is so full of God's goodness that this goodness even overflows and blesses even the places that we would least expect, right? which is the second thing that this narrative really tries to bring out. He spends verse 10 to 14 to reflect on this. Now, for some reason, I always thought that there were four rivers in Eden, but it's clearly there written in verse 10 that there was one river which divided into four, kind of like as it leaves Eden. So the image here suggested like, that this garden is located in this elevated place, this mountain, because that's how rivers work. It flows down from an elevated place. And in fact, Ezekiel 28 confirms to us that in Eden, there is this mountain of God. And from this elevated mountain exists this spring that produces this one river. And out of this same spring that waters God's holy place, it will actually flow out and continue to give life to all the earth. But the places here that are explicitly mentioned, the rivers went to is extremely significant. If you were an ancient Israelite, right? The original readers of this text. The first river is called Pishon. Nobody knows which exact river um, is being talked about here. But the Bible says that it flowed through the land of Havilah, right? So Havilah is a place south of Israel, and it is well known as the place that you have to go through if you want to get to Egypt. And, you know, it, this is interesting that it says that this river was filled with all sorts of treasures. Treasures, by the way, if you read the Exodus story, the, Israel was, the Israelites will bring out of Egypt. The second river, Gihon, also a mysterious river that no one knows the exact location of. But interestingly... What the Israel, this is what the Israelites call Gihon, the main source of the waters of the city of Jerusalem. But what it says here is that it flowed around the land of Cush, what we think about as Ethiopia and South Sudan. So it, it goes from Eden to a place with, with a people and a culture that is completely foreign to the Hebrew understanding. And the last two rivers, however, are actually major rivers that still exist today, and we can find them in Iraq. And these are the rivers of Tigris and the Euphrates. The Tigris is associated with Assyria, the big bad emperor that completely decimated Israel and sent them into exile, and the Euphrates, which was not explained here, flowed into what, but it is such a well-known river that uh, we would know which empire this is talking about just by implication. And by the way, if you didn't know, it's the empire of Babylon, right? And who is a huge antagonist for the, for the Israelites back then. So what it's saying here, right? That the river that flows out of Eden and give life to God's people also give life to the empires that would eventually become the biggest antagonists in the Old Testament. The big baddies, the big banes of Israel's existence. And the author really took the time to teach us that even these groups 
Those who are undeserving and God, those who God will, has surely known will be evil also benefits from the blessing of this generous, life-giving God. They too draw their strength from God. Yet further down the story, we see that their great sin is that they took advantage of the source of life. They hardened their hearts and they hoarded the goodness that God has given them and used it to harm other people, to destroy other images of God by polluting God's land with sin. Because, friends, the abundance that God created us and graciously gifted us to enjoy was never meant to be abused. Rather, what we were meant to do is what verse 15 calls working and keeping the garden, which is the third thing our narrative really brings out here about our role in the garden. Now, in the Bible, working and keeping is used only as the job description of one particular group of people in the Bible, right? Like if I say that my job is to preach and pray or that my wife's job is to teach and grade, you pretty much know immediately what our jobs are. Same thing with these words. And these two words in combination is used to describe what the priest and Levites do. So what this is really pointing us towards is that this garden place that God placed these humans is described as a temple space where the personal presence of God resides. And in fact, if you read the descriptions of the other places where God is present, it really directly and closely maps on to this description of an imagery of Eden that we just read. So our job as humans from the beginning was to make ourselves at home, to, to, to take care and care for this space. The words that uh, are translated here as work in Hebrew is actually avad. And this word avad has a really wide lexical range. It can mean a lot of things, like from work to uh, cultivate the ground, or you know, even to worship, but its most basic meaning is to serve. And the other words here, which is keep, is translated as shamar, does mean to like, keep or protect, but it mainly means to, uh, to maintain what has already been established. And these two words, when referring to the job of priest, specifically refer to the, their commands to obey closely the commandments of God and to maintain the liturgical practice commanded to them by the Torah. So, guarding and keeping basically means that we are supposed to listen to God and make sure that He is worshipped properly by everyone. And don't misunderstand, friends, that the Israelites didn't think of these priests as simply doing some rote religious rituals. Rather, it is the work of the priests to maintain the order of creation. They are the ones who are supposed to make sure that the relationship between heaven and earth is good. Because otherwise, without this alignment that we have, creatures have, with our creator, creation will descend back into chaos. And what 
a weighty responsibility this is, especially for some creatures made of dust. Okay, so to recap this somewhat complicated point, okay, God created humans to live with him in this heavenly refuge where they are sustained and blessed by God's abundant generosity. And this place is so overflowing with good that it is meant to bless and spread to the nations that even turned out to be evil and violent. Yet our calling as priests who are living in close proximity to the source of blessing is to not take advantage of God's blessings like these nations eventually will do, but to keep and maintain this place of abundant blessedness. We're supposed to keep the party going and maintain this intimate, close, face-to-face relationship with our Creator. Beautiful, isn't it? At least for me, right? But it gets even better. Because even though He doesn't owe it to us, in fact, we owe Him our obedience just by virtue of the fact that we are creatures. God actually wants to elevate these dirt creatures even higher. There is something more that God wants us to have, which is point three. Okay, God elevated mortal creatures to work and keep his holy sanctuary so that we can enjoy him forever, eventually. Now, you may have noticed that there is one final detail in the text that I haven't talked about yet. Probably the most well-known thing about the Garden of Eden. Because in Eden, it says there were these two trees he put in the garden. Tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right, The most famous trees ever, I think. Super important. And I'll just get into it for the uh, interest of time. Because what these trees represent is the archetypal story of the test that all humans will eventually have to face. The test of having the choice between life and death. But before we talk about this test, I want us to notice first in verse 16, right, that the actual first command that we see God gives the humans, the first word that we see God speak to Adam in, in this narrative of creation was not to not do anything, but to enjoy all the trees. Eat of every tree. That was the first command. You see, God actually leads with an invitation to enjoy the gifts. Right? And that is a game changer for me because it means that what God wants to do is that he wants for us first to enjoy him. Yet the reality is that this gift that God gave, though was unconditioned, was not unconditional. Here's what I mean, right? It is unconditioned, meaning that Adam's, humans' enjoyment of the blessedness of the garden wasn't ever because of some other thing, right? Because we proved ourselves to be worthy of enjoying this blessing. This blessing was handed to them. It was given to them for free. However, this gift is conditional, meaning that now, because they have this gift, 
There is something that they are expected to do with it, a way to handle properly the gift that God has given us, and that there is a choice that can ruin everything and will make us forfeit this gift. This is what this text seeks to reveal. Will God's design partners trust God and make the right choice? Because on the one hand, right, the test is that there is this tree of life, and what this tree represents is eternal life, a life that is beyond the current life that we have, the still formed from dust life, which is still susceptible from death. I used to think that humans were created to be immortal, but that's not quite the case. Humans were created still corruptible, still able to die, yet are given the opportunity to transcend this frail, mortal existence. And before humans were disobedient to God's command, we had access to this tree. In fact, God clearly invited us to eat of these trees. And this is not 100% absolute scripture, but it makes sense to me that Adam and Eve probably ate from this tree. And should this fruit of life be a regular part of their diet, their life would always be renewed and they didn't have to worry about death, right? So it's not like God got lucky that we ate of the wrong tree first and he had the chance to get rid of this other tree. Because I used to think that the fruit of the tree of life was like some kind of magical fruit, right? That if I had just one bite of it, it'll give me this superpower to not be able to die. That if I just ate the tree, I'd become, you know, like Deadpool or something. But this tree actually offers us not superpowers, but something better. Because it's not the tree itself that gives eternal life. Rather, it is the act of choosing this tree instead of the other is what gives eternal life because it brings us to proximity to the source of life itself. Are you following me? Because, on the other hand, there is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and this tree also didn't have a magical fruit. The only thing that made the fruit of this tree special is that God said to Adam and Eve, not this one. Because knowledge of the good and evil, friends, is not about information. Rather, what, is, what it is referring to is how we're ever going to learn what is good or bad. Will they let God teach them? Will we let God teach us? Or will we try to figure it out for ourselves? As you see, up to this point, God is the one who decided what is good six times. As we read in our confession of sin, God said that all creation was good. Very good, in fact. So he's the only one who knows what is good and what is not. And he was never intending to withhold this information from us. It's not like he wants us to be just ignorant. And presumably, God knows that if we were going to fulfill this calling to represent God's authority over the earth as his images and serve and keep um, this sacred space as his priest, we would need it. So it's not like God wants us to be in the dark. But the question 
that this test seeks to answer is whether or not God, we as humans will allow God to teach us this wisdom. Whether we will learn by watching God's knowledge at work or will we choose a path of independence apart from divine wisdom? You know, one of the most pressing questions I had as I was growing into my faith about the Bible is just, why didn't God just get rid of the tree? He knows that it's so dangerous, right? I mean, at, or at least hide it if he can't get rid of it somewhere inaccessible, like in a volcano or at the bottom of the sea or something, right? Not right in the middle of the garden. As it says, it seemed irresponsible, at least back then for me, for God to allow humans to even make such a choice with devastating consequences. But after a bit of reflection, this is where I'm at now, right? And again, this is my currency at my change in the future, but this is where I am now. That God put the tree there intentionally because God doesn't want robots who are simply programmed to do His every command. God wants, as partners, sentient images who choose to follow Him. Imagine this, right? Like they were guarding and keeping the garden. Every time they would walk across the garden, they would see this tree and they would constantly choose, I'm not going to eat of that one because I have the source of life with me. God wants partners who know in the face of temptation to choose Him because we know that in Him there is that which is truly life. Spoiler alert, though, his dirt creature partners will fail epically <laughs> to do this, right? Humans will fall into sin, and in fact, in the Bible, as we see the progress of the story of the Bible, every single time God gave the humans a chance to choose between life or death, no matter what God has done to prove to them that he is absolutely trustworthy, even though they might choose God at first, somewhere down the line, eventually they will choose death. This is literally the story of Israel and all the heroes of the Bible that we study. And the blessings that they could have had if they were obedient to God, they had to forfeit. And friends, the reality is you and I and every single human on earth has forfeited our right to this blessing. Every single one of us had at some point decided for ourselves what is good and evil apart from God. We have tread this road of independence. Do you realize that by yourself? I do, certainly. So nobody, not a single person have ever been worthy of eternal life except and you definitely know where I'm going with this if you've been to CCC, the only hero of the Bible, this lowly Jesus of Nazareth who came from the most humble of beginnings, he was the only one who was able to choose to trust only God. 
He was the only human who was so aligned to God's will that he will only go where God sends him and only say what God wants him to say. Right? The one who is only the only one who is able to have this complete and absolute trust in God. And so he is the one, the only one who truly is worthy of eternal life. He was the man Adam failed to be. And God sent him to us so that we can truly know how good God is. He is the one who gives us the wisdom of God regarding what is good and evil. And that he, what God, Jesus tells us and shows us is that God is trustworthy because is, he is so good a God so generous, so forgiving, so determined to bless that he would limit himself to take on our dirt creature form and return to the dust when Jesus willingly gave up his life on the cross. Friends, if we flip or scroll, I guess, to the other side of the Bible, to the final two chapters in the book of Revelation, we get to see what this finished version of what God started here in the first two chapters of the Bible will look like. The garden that you were supposed to cultivate has been turned into the city on a hill where the trees of life are everywhere, where the nations to whom, through whom all the streams of God's blessing had flown will actually stream back to the city with their blessings. And right there, in the middle of the city, sitting on the throne is the source of blessedness himself, the risen Lord Jesus, who is able to be this fount of blessedness, the one who offers us the tr true fruit of life because he himself realized the ideal, the purpose, the narrative that God intended humans to follow. Brothers and sisters, to recap, the Bible's narrative is, is this. God elevated us from the dust so that we can have face-to-face -face fellowship with him. But we forfeited this privilege by choosing death instead of trusting him. But if we follow Jesus and allow him to lead us and teach us what God's goodness is, the privilege is still ours. We are still welcome, not only to a garden, but to a heavenly city where our joy will be complete. We will see our Lord face to face. Friends, if you have not um, followed Jesus, and if you have not, and this is not yet your narrative, but you know deep in your heart that you're meant to be reconciled with this God, I'm telling you today that he is offering you the chance Choose life. Choose to follow Jesus. And I promise you, God promises you that you will see the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so amazingly floored at your surpassing grace. Who are we, O oh Lord? We are but dust without you. 
that despite our rebellion, despite our decision to not honor you as God, you still give us this opportunity. You still gave us your son. Lord, let us have that be the narrative that we live by. Ingrain that in our heart, Lord, and allow us to see the foolishness of choosing to live apart from you, that we may enjoy and lay hold of that which is truly life. Amen. Friends, I invite us to stand and sing this last song together. Come down.